The first passage is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the second reading is from the New Testament, book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulging revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, you're on page eight of the service handout, you'll see an outline. It's there both, you, you don't have to write down, the, I've got a number of references. You know, one day I bring, we bring Bibles back, shouldn't we, so people can follow these things. So that's for later on. 
Well, we're in a series, as you can tell, Verbs of Discipleship in Deuteronomy, which may seem strange at first because by discipleship we mean being an active disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is Christian discipleship. But Deuteronomy is set in the late Bronze Age, well over a thousand years before Christ. It's addressed to a significantly different situation, culture and context from us or even the New Testament. How can we learn Christian discipleship from a book so distant? I'll tell you how. By recognising that although we are not directly addressed by this book, we're not Israel camped on the east of the River Jordan about to enter into the land God has promised. Yet we can still gain much wisdom from it ourselves, uh, as I hope to show you. Today the verb of discipleship is obey. What can Deuteronomy teach us about obeying the Lord in the Christian discipleship? I have to show you we can discern a pattern of obedience that, despite all the great differences between them and us, gives wisdom to our lives. I want to go to the Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30 and then come back to us. Now, by the time we, are chapter, we come to chapter 29, we're coming to the pointy end of Deuteronomy, the climax of the book, the renewal of the covenant between the Lord and Israel. Verse 1 sets the tone. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he'd made with them at Horeb. At Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, the Lord had made a covenant with Israel whom he'd just redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And now at the end of the long journey, as they're about to enter the land, the Lord tells Moses to make a covenant again. And it's a threefold shape of this covenant that will have something for us in Christian discipleship as well. I start by asking, what is a covenant? A covenant is a structured arrangement between two parties. A structured arrangement between two parties. To call it a deal would be to underplay it. A treaty is getting closer. But what kind of treaty... What kind of structured relationship arrangement can there be between the Lord, the living God, creator of heaven and earth, on the one hand, and a bunch of human creatures on the other? How could that be? Well, let me show you with Moses' words from chapter 29, verse 12. He's speaking to them. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant is to confirm them, Israel, as the Lord's people, that he may be their God. Confirm them as the Lord's people, that he may be their God. The Lord God had chosen them out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. That's what the covenant was about. Notice also, by the way, that the initiative is the Lord's initiative, not theirs. 
It's a covenant the Lord is making with them. They haven't broken it. That's why in the words before the text I just read, Moses has again recited the great acts of the Lord in delivering them from Egypt and preserving them all the years on their desert wanderings that they might know that he is the Lord. Notice also there's nothing about the people that in any way deserved or attracted the Lord to them. The Lord is keeping the promises to their ancestors, not recognising virtue or attractiveness. As he promised you, as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's pretty clear. This covenant is a gift from the Lord, an undeserved gift. And that's the first of the three features of the covenant I want to draw to your attention this morning. God has taken the initiative to take them as his people without their deserving. It is God's undeserved, unconditioned gift. Now to the second feature. The covenant may be undeserved, but it's not without conditions. The condition of the covenant is that Israel, as the Lord's people, must be faithful to the Lord their God. It's unconditioned, but not unconditional. They must be loyal to the Lord by obeying his instruction, his Torah, on how to live as to be his people, that he may dwell among them. That's the obligation of the, of the covenant, obedience. That is, keeping the Lord's instructions, commands and decrees that are laid out earlier in Deuteronomy. So that's the second feature of the covenant, obligation of obedience, which leads to the third structure of the covenant, consequences. There are consequences, profound consequences, to what Israel actually does with this. Better, there are extreme consequences. It's a matter of life or death. Listen to how graphically Moses puts it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. I quote, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. You can't get more black and white than that. Which will you choose? It is extreme. But, and why does Moses put it like that? Well, I'll read on, verse 16, the next verse. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. The way of life is the way of obedience to the covenant, to the Lord. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord God will bless you. In fact, in Deuteronomy earlier, the whole chapter is describing the kind of blessings God has for them. But what if Israel is not obedient? What if they turn from the Lord? The consequences is not blessing then and life, but curse and death from the Lord. The next verse, verse 17. But if your heart turns away, this is not just about making a mistake. It's not about small errors, the, the, the God's instruction of ways in which you can re be forgiven and, and, and restored. That's not the issue. This is wholehearted turning. In the head, right? He says, if your heart turns away and you're not obedient and drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. The way of death is the way of turning from the Lord. And those curses are also laid out graphically in chapters 26 through chapter 28. The situation is this. Once the Lord had chosen 
and redeemed this people from slavery in Egypt and brought them out to himself, there's no going back. They can't get out of it. Oh, they have a choice, a choice of life or death, but there's no undecided. Now, this may sound severe, but Moses makes two further comments that I think help soften this a little. First, he offers hope beyond failure. In the verses before the ones I've read, in chapters 30, verses 1 to 10, he says that although Israel may find themselves dispersed among the nations under the Lord's curse for unfaithfulness, yet when they and their children return to the Lord and obey him, the Lord will restore them and have compassion on them and return them to the land. In fact, Moses goes even further. He suggests that when the Lord restores them from exile, he'll perform a strange work in their hearts. Chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. It's kind of a heart transplant. So there's hope beyond failure. And secondly, Moses tells them that what's being asked them is not rocket science. They're not his actual words, but it's the vibe of what he says next. Verse, chapter 30, verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach, he says. That is, this is not some esoteric, unattainable perfection. No, he says in verse 12, it's not up in heaven. Got to ask, who can get it for us that we can hear about and do it? He says, not, it's not across the seas at the end of the earth. No, he says, the word is very near to you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may obey it. Not asking too much at all. So there are the three aspects. One, the gift of the Lord's grace to be his people in the covenant. Two, Israel is bound to be faithful to the Lord their God by obedience. Three, there are consequences of life, blessing, death, curse. And then Moses comes at last to the climax of all he's spoken in Deuteronomy. This really is the climax of the, of the main heart of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 19. When he lays it down, he says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. He'll give you many years in, which the, la in the land the Lord swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now this is what sets up the story of the rest of the Old Testament. It's the foundation story of Israel in the land, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. It's the foundation of the ministry of the prophets. But sadly, as Moses himself seems to expect in Deuteronomy, the outcome is not good. The people really do not change, despite notable exceptions, the project is a failure. Literary critic and public intellectual Terry Eagleton captures it well when he wrote, and I quote, there is a document that record God's endless 
dispiriting struggle with organized religion known as the Bible. They chose death. They failed to abide and face the consequences. And so they experienced the curse of defeat and loss from the very land they're entering into. In 722 BC, the curses mentioned in Deuteronomy fell upon the northern kingdom. And then in 586 BC, they fell on Jerusalem and Judah. The people of Israel went off into exile. It was a kind of death. And yet God did not give up. He brought them back to the land, many of them anyway. Though things were never quite the same, and they were rarely free from foreign domination by pagan nations. When the New Testament opens, we still find faithful Israelites looking for the consolation of Israel. In a sense, the curse is somehow still there. Now, that's the context into which Jesus, the Son of God and Messiah of Israel, arrives. And he is the climax and fulfillment of the scriptures and Deuteronomy. Let me give three quick examples of how the New Testament presents this in terms of Deuteronomy. One, in, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes of the death of Jesus in a quite striking way in terms of the curse in Deuteronomy. He writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The us, Paul's writing as a member of Israel here, are redeemed from the curse of, of the disobedience by the Christ or Messiah of Israel becoming a curse for us. Very strange language, isn't it? Becoming a curse. It's a vivid way of saying, in a sense, he, he himself, the full force of the curse, he takes into himself for us, Israel's curse. And this is not only for Israel, though, because the very next sentence, Paul writes, he redeemed us, that's believing Israelites like Paul, in order that the blessing of Abraham might be given to the nations, the Gentiles, uh, through Christ Jesus, and that we, my faith, might receive the promise of the Spirit. The consequence, or the purpose, you might say, of Christ Jesus bearing the curse of Deuteronomy on Israel opens the, the blessing for all the nations as well. That's the first. Two. Both in 2 Corinthians and Hebrews, both 2 Corinthians and Hebrews declare a new covenant, a new covenant in Christ. Picking out promises in Jeremiah. A new covenant in Christ. A new structured relationship between God and now both Jew and non-Jew, Israel and the nations. A covenant with, to echo the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, a circumcision that is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. And three, in Romans 10, Paul can even take <clears throat> Moses' words about the accessibility of the Lord's commands, it's not rocket science, and apply them to the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. This is verse 6 and following from Romans chapter 10. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart 
who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, who will ascend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And this is directly from Deuteronomy. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That word is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, isn't that remarkable? I mean, that, the audacity, the sheer audacity of Paul <clears throat> taking the, reimagining the words of Moses in the scripture like this, that they are become now to be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, but in particular, his resurrection and lordship. So in other words, Christ bears the curse of the covenant. He inaugurates a new covenant. He is the content of the word by which we are saved. That's some of the ways in which he fulfills the scriptures and Deuteronomy. <clears throat> which finally, and you may say at last, brings us to the question of the sermon. The question of obedience and Christian discipleship. Now we've seen the threefold shape of, of the covenant of obedience in Deuteronomy 29.30. The question is, is that what Christian discipleship, <coughs> excuse me, is like also. Well, it's gone, don't worry. No, wait, no, 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 I'm, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there. No. Is that what the shape of Christian discipleship is like also? Yes. Despite the differences, yes. We are in a covenant. That is, if you've confessed with your heart, declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and in your heart, can believe that God raised him from the dead as your Lord, give your life to him, then you are in a covenant with God, a new covenant. He to be your God and you to be his people. And that covenant is undeserved. Undeserved, unmerited, unconditioned. In fact, it's not just the undeserving to whom God has done this, but even those who could be characterized as God's enemies, which is even worse. Israel was never God's enemies, but now God's enemies. As Paul says in Romans 5.10, why we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So there you have it, a covenant of grace. But two, secondly, we're also obligated to obey, live faith and obey the gospel. Now, the shape of obedience under the new covenant differs from that under the law of the old covenant. That's why we don't read Deuteronomy straightforwardly about our own lives. Right? We're not under that covenant. The content of obedience is different in many ways. But the obligation of obedience is the same. The obey, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God, Though you used to be slaves of sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching that's claimed your allegiance, the gospel. So it's by grace. It has the obligation of obedience. What are, are there consequences? Yes, there are consequences. Now, although we are not 
encouraged to read blessing and curse out of our life circumstances. That's not what we're encouraged to do. You know what I mean? My life's going well. God must be blessing me for my obedience. My life's going terribly. God must be cursing me for my disobedience. That is not a New Testament way to think about troubles. The New Testament is just as likely to say, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Or even, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But the New Testament does warn believers, believers about the consequences of living an unrepentant, disobedient life. Say it again. The, the New Testament does warn believers about the consequences of living an unrepentant, disobedient life. For example, three times, Galatians 5, 12, 6, 9, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and Ephesians 5, 5, Paul lists a series of vices, immorality, greed, idolatry, violence, and so forth. And then he warns his Christian readers not to be deceived because those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God and of Christ. Notice not those who once lived like this because many of his readers had once lived like that, the point he makes in 1 Corinthians 6. But those who continue to live like this now will not inherit the kingdom of God and of Christ. Another example, our second reading. You heard there 1 Corinthians 10, Paul laying out to his readers the example of the first generation of Israelites, who although they shared in the redemption of Egypt and he puts it baptized into Moses, nonetheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness because of idolatry and immorality and so forth. And he draws an application from that for his readers upon whom the end of the ages has come. It's a helpful way he puts it, though. He, he brings out a two-sided application. The main one is warning against complacency. Don't become like them. But also, he includes in that uh, an encouragement against despair. One of the great troubles giving a sermon like this on obedience is that half of you think, oh, I'm okay, no probs. You're the complacent one. The others say, oh, my goodness me, I, I'm really worried now when I'm properly obeying. I must, and you, half of you are overly uh, confident, or half of you are slightly paranoid. Um, this is the nature of a Christian congregation. And Paul speaks to both of us. To those overly confident, he says, so if you think you're standing firm... Be careful you don't fall. That is, don't be complacent about the call to obedience in the gospel. And that's the main takeout of today's sermon on verbs of discipleship in Deuteronomy. If you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. That is, apply yourself intentionally to the issue of obedience. Don't be complacent. But Paul doesn't leave it there and neither will I. Because there's encouragement... You may think this sounds rather daunting. No, there's encouragement about going forward with confidence. Not in your strength. I'm a moral superweight. No, in God's faithfulness. So the very next thing Paul says, having warned them not to be careful they don't fall, is no temptation, he says, has overtaken you except what's common to humankind. 
God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Isn't that a great encouragement? He says, but when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can endure it. So you can endure it. Obedience to the living God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not impossible. Not perfection. Simple, straightforward, faithful obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, without you, we are not able to please you. Mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.